Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Paddle Pod. This is your host, Andrew Russell, Atlantic Division Strategic Projects Lead and the lead for the 2022 World Championships. I'm very excited about today's episode because I'm going to be interviewing uh, a friend and uh, also someone that's just led the sport on all fronts and now is taking the SUP world by storm. That is, of course, Larry Kane, three times Olympian. Canadian gold medalist at the Olympics and uh, all around paddle sport enthusiast and ambassador and mentor. So without further ado, uh, Oakville's own Larry Kane. Larry, welcome to the Paddle Pod. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you on, man. So tell the listeners, how many kilometers did you paddle this morning? 10K. Um, Yeah, 10 beautiful K on Lake Ontario. On Lake Ontario, and just so people know, and I date stamp this, is December 5th, and you have a bit of a newfound, uh, exciting winter tradition that you're sharing with the world. Tell us, uh, how many kilometers are you forecasting for this winter? Well, it's, I mean, it's always a tough call to know exactly how many you're going to get in in the winter because, um, you know, there are days where you just can't do it, but... Um, uh the last couple last three winters i guess um from january 1st until kind of beginning of april i've uh been between 800 and a thousand k so um i'm hoping to be in the same range again um just finishing up the um the uh, 2018 calendar year and uh i'm at uh 3320 kilometers 3320 so i'm hoping to get to 3500 um, the forecast for December looks pretty reasonable, so um, I think that's realistic, and then we'll go from there. Um, you know, it's nothing that it's, um, it's not like a, these aren't like hard targets where it's a big failure if I don't get it, but um, it's just uh, if I can paddle four to five times a week through the winter, it keeps me happy, and um, you're able to, to pile up that kind of distance. Yeah, and you've been part of the paddling community for so many years now, Larry, and, and, and you know, such a, a positive ambassador of uh, all things canoe, kayak, and now stand-up paddleboard, which is, uh, you know, growing phenomenally. Um, take us back to when you started. What was your kind of introduction to the sport of canoeing? Uh, well, I started when I was um, uh, 11 years old at the... Uh Burlow Canoe Club. It was then called the Oakville Racing Canoe Club. And uh, I just ended up going down there with um, some neighborhood friends. Our mothers had uh, looked through the recreation brochure that the town put out and saw that there was uh, canoeing. The club was new. It was in its first year. And uh, so we went down and did just the canoeing and water safety course. And while we were there, we had an opportunity to try uh, racing canoes and kayaks. And uh, I was uh, had my imagination captured by C1 largely because I couldn't stay in it and um, it took me you know uh, most of the first summer to be able to to um, paddle at any great distance without falling in and um, you know that was my first goal and, and um, um, I guess in uh, 1976 I did my first race in C1 and I actually saw John Wood win his silver medal in Montreal that summer. And uh, I remember turning to my parents and saying, that's what I want to do. And that became my all-consuming goal after that. And um, uh, I think I was lucky that I uh, 
it started at a club where there was really good coaching and positive role models. And um, um, one thing led to another, and I was able to, um, um, uh, you know, get uh, get to get where to the top. yeah, get to where you were and get to the top. And you know, I, I guess you probably had the makeup of a, a strong competitor from an early age, given that what attracted you to the sport in a way was the challenge of it. But um, what was it about conquering that ba- like early balance piece that you know made you fall in love with the sport? When did you know for sure, like, hey, this is something I just absolutely love doing and it's going to be a lifelong passion? Well, I, I didn't know that at the beginning. I mean, the, the thing that made me want to do it at, at the beginning was just that I was the slowest of our group to be able to uh, to paddle in it. And so I just didn't like being the, uh, the worst of the group. And... Um, so that gave me the determination to try to um, to get better at it. You know, I wanted to go from being the last guy to be able to to paddle 200 meters down to the to the gas docks and then back up the river to the canoe club dock. Um, I wanted to to go from there to being like the fastest in our group. You know, that's all I cared about initially. Uh, I just didn't like being the worst. Um, but um, I think John Wood's silver medal was a big moment, and um, and then uh, the the coach who started uh, the club, Bill Collins, uh, had been an Olympian in 1956, and he was really well-versed in the history of canoeing. And I remember him taking me to uh, my first uh, nationals, which we called CCA at the time, and it was in Toronto on Centre Island. And uh, he showed me all the trophies, and he showed me where his name was on the trophies. And, he, you know, and the trophies, when you're a... Uh, I mean, even now, they're spectacular. You know, you look at the black became aware of the lore of the sport and um, um, uh, watching John win his silver medal at the Olympics. And, yeah, talk and it, take it. Been, there, been there himself, it, it taught me that um, this is something I wanted to do. So um, away I went and uh, uh, I really haven't looked back. Larry, talk us through um, John Wood, you know, rest his soul. Talk us talk us through what that race and that experience watching his silver medal performance and that was for our listeners the c1 which is a singles canoe 500 meter race uh, in montreal which is hosting um walk us through what that experience was like and 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 what you remember well i was watching it in my uh with my parents uh, at home in oakville on tv and um uh because bill collins had been one of the first coaches at Mississauga Canoe Club. Um, he had been John's coach in his early days, and um, it was um, um, he'd been he'd been he'd introduced me to um, to John before the Olympics. So I you know, I kind of felt like I had a connection. I'd know, I know I knew him, and John had been really good. He'd gone out and paddled with me, and you know gave me some tips. And it was like uh, just imagine like a young hockey player getting to skate with Sidney Crosby or something. It was the same. It was the same type of experience, and. So when I watched it on TV, it was not only was he a Canadian guy, but he was a guy that I'd met. And he was doing the same thing as me. And um, uh, so I felt a real connection to that. And, um, you know, it's pretty incredible. We, I mean, you've been to the Olympics and race there yourself. And you think about the, uh, the impact that that has on kids in the community when they get a chance to talk to you and, and um uh, how excited they are to see you race and the kids at the canoe club, how excited they are to, you know, the, the, the send off they have for you at the club and, and just, uh, how the whole club, the whole community gets involved in, in, 
um, in, uh, you know, your Olympic experience because the Olympic Games are such a monumental thing. And so, you know, in 76, they were equally monumental. In fact, maybe bigger because it was Canada hosting its first Olympics. And so it was just, it was just a really big deal. And then for me to have a connection to this guy, um, uh, made it really special. And, and then after, you know, he won his silver medal and I decided that, you know, I, I realized it made me think of what's possible, what I might be able to achieve. And, and I, I had that goal to try to get there myself and, and get on the podium. Uh, John was a fixture, you know, in my life. He was, um, he actually moved from Mississauga to Oakville and paddled kind of recreationally on, um, on the river. And so I got to paddle with him a lot and, um, uh, you know, learn a lot from uh from him and um and that's not to say i didn't have great coaching from jim reardon who was my coach and you know have the older shaws around uh who you know been to the olympics and uh countless times and it was just a really good atmosphere for a kid who had this dream of going to the olympics to be surrounded by these olympians and a guy who'd won who got on the podium what, what a great sense of community hey like uh, that people with that experience that there's not like a separation that you're able to, like you say, have like a real conversation with someone that is so inspiring. So fast forward now for us, like where, Larry, what was the first moment where you felt something special in your paddling? You know, you've captured your balance and then you start to to see some success. What was the first big kind of breakthrough you can remember? Um, you know, I, I, I guess maybe in 1978, uh, uh, I ended up coming third in juvenile C1 that year behind uh, David McNaughton from Chima and, and Kevin Stott. Um, and back then there was only 500 meters uh, for juvenile. There was no midget uh, at uh, the nationals. And this would be the so under, I, under 18 category, right? Right, right. So, um, uh, yeah, they don't call juvenile midget anymore, do they? So, um, uh, you know, that was a big moment. But earlier in the year they'd had a, a series of competitions, sort of like Pan American competitions. There was a race in Lexington, Ohio. There was a race in Montreal, the basin. And then at, in October, there was a race in Mexico City. And um, because I'd done well at the selections for that, I got to race the 1,000-meter C1. And uh, I was the second entry, um, but I ended up winning uh, in Ohio and winning in Montreal, um, and so I was beating the Canadian guys who were, had beaten me at the selection and, um, in thousand meter, which wasn't a, an event at, at the nationals, but you know, uh, so that was, it was that, a, st- a stepping stone, if you will. It was a big stepping stone. Like it showed me that I was moving in the right direction and, um, uh, so, so I think a lot of belief in myself. And then the next yeah. year, actually, um, you know, uh, I'd hoped to go to the Junior Worlds in 79, which were in Tampere, Finland, and race C2 with Kevin Stott. And we ended up losing both C2s at the selection um, to uh, Mark uh, Granger and Eve Schmidt from Lachine. But I won both of the C1s, so I ended up racing C1 at the Junior Worlds um, in 79 and uh, making the finals, coming 7th and 8th. And, um, you know, so that was another big... Um, uh, you know, big step forward um, because ultimately, you know, my goal was to go to the Olympics, but along the way was the goal of going to the junior worlds as well. And 
I was Junior Worlds eligible eligible in 1981, uh, up till 1981. And so, you know, being able to go two years before that and get that experience was really valuable. And mm. it was, 78, 79 were big, big years for me when I really realized that um, doing the sport at a high level was something that was you know, was realistic. There's a couple of things that jump out to me, Larry, when I hear you, you tell those stories. One is, um, the building momentum. Maybe I'll take some Liberty here and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Those races where you run one, those thousand meter races, those stepping stone opportunities, if you will, like, was that a, a huge confidence booster for you? Was that something that, that helped solidify your, your confidence to know that, hey, I can, I can do even more. I can keep going and get better and better. Or did you kind of have a sense that you were on that path already? Um, you know, a bit of both. Uh, like, I knew where I wanted to go. And, and um, um, having a, you know, a, a good coach and a good program and being on water that is pretty uh consistent in terms of the conditions that it we had to paddle and i was able to to even at an early age do a lot of workouts that were you know marker workouts where i could chart my progress so i kind of knew i was on on a good track but at the same time when you go and actually have these race opportunities and do well Mm -hmm. um it it reaffirms that you're on that right track and uh gives you a lot of confidence so it was i think it's a case of both and um you know um it, one would kind of feed off the other so i'd go and have i I'd draw confidence from what i was doing in training and and the work i was doing with my coach and my training group i was paddling with older people in my training group and and so you know trying to be uh you were chasing a younger athlete and yet you know beat older guys and then um, uh, that would give me confidence and, and, you know, belief that I was in the right track. Then I'd go and have a great race uh, or a couple of great races at a competition. And that would reaffirm everything and give me even more confidence that I could then bring back to my training. And so one kind of led to the other and it just kept like in a circle, you know, they just kept supporting each other. And yeah. uh, like the downhill, um, downhill snowball that just keeps getting bigger it, with momentum. Exactly. A good analogy. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the breakthrough. Talk me through the, I guess, the initial disappointment with the crew team where, you know, we, I think we have, we have a lot of young listeners and athletes through the Atlantic Vision and beyond young paddlers that are, are, are going through what you're talking about, building confidence, but also experiencing setbacks. What was the learning for you early on when you had, you know, that goal of racing in those crew boats with the, in your C2 that you mentioned, and then not having that come through, obviously it worked out with your racing the singles, but what, 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 how did you bounce back from the initial setback? Um, well, I mean, you know, it's funny cause the setback was, you know, the setback and, the and, the, the earning the ability to race, been singles happened at the same time you know on the same weekend so in actual fact you know i went out and raced the c1 first we both raced c1 and then we jumped into c2 went out and raced c1 and i won it and i was like whoa like i didn't that was where'd that come from that was amazing and then um jumped into c2 and it didn't go as well and um you know um so that was really disappointing but i at the same time i just done something that i'd never done before in c1 so um, you know, I was, the disappointment was, was really, um, 
uh, tempered by the the surprise of being you know walking away from that weekend as the top C one guy. Um, but you know, I, I, I'll be honest, like you know, that was a disappointment. But the, like again, the the positive that came out of that weekend was 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 a really great positive. So I didn't really start to deal with disappointments until like you know major disappointments until um a couple of years later when um uh i started to um have some you know very high expectations and then sometimes fall short of them so let's let's walk forward to your training that led you to you know three incredible bursts with the the olympic team um you were known by many, and I mean, I, as a young athlete and kid coming up, I also looked up to your performances. Um, you were known as a fearsome competitor and someone that trained like no other. What was your mentality like that gave you that kind of drive and determination? Kind of walk us through the mental side of it. Um, well, uh, you know, I, 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 I figured uh, at an early age that... Um, um, it was uh, important to um, not just um, uh, uh, y- y- you couldn't just paddle well you had to be really fit you couldn't just be you know have good aerobic fitness you had to be uh, have really good power and power endurance and you know uh, it was a it was a total package that you needed and I really tried to take like a leave no stone unturned approach um, and was mental uh, was mental training. aside that you dove into as well because there's many like on the world stage there's many athletes that can do the put the physical tools together if you will in training and such but then when it comes time to race the ability to showcase your best is not a skill everyone has because the mental fortitude to, to work through those stressful situations can be uh, inhibiting for some people how were you able to to kind of conjure up that continual edge to be able to put it together when it counted yeah I, I, that's a good question i you know i think it was just uh, a case of of you know desire and determination and the fact that you know i'd set this goal and there was nothing that was going to come between me and that goal i used to write on my papers that i handed in in high school i would write larry kane future world and olympic champion really and instead of just my name i would write that in the paper that was and like your, uh, your yesteryear email signature would have larry kane future olympic champion on it yeah yeah and and, and, and so wow uh, uh and i just did that you know I, I would write that in my textbooks property of larry kane future world olympic champion I, I i would just you know that was all i could think about you know uh morning First thing in the morning when I'd wake up to last thing at night when I go to bed uh, was, um, you know, um, this is what I want to do, and um, I I made a lot of sacrifices um, to, you know, like I opted out of a lot of things that my friends were doing because I wanted to, uh, like, you know, on Saturday morning we'd have time controls, and Friday night there'd be a high school party. Well, I'd bail on the party and go home and get a good night's sleep because. I wanted to do well in the time controls, and um, you know it, it was a sacrifice, but it was it was one I was happy to make because I was where I wanted to be on Saturday morning. Did you and ever struggle or de- or deviate with that attitude? Did you ever hit? No, no, no. no. It was just I was. This is what I did, and um, and so when I had an opportunity to race, um, you know, I get really excited about the opportunity, 
um, I'd always look at it as, you know, like it started in Canada as a young paddler racing above my head, racing, um, you know, the, the top C1 guys at the time were guys like Greg Smith, who had paddled C2 with John Wood, um, Jeremy Abbott, uh, guys like Norm Behrens and Steve Botting, Martin Fraser. These were the, the top canoe guys. And if I had a chance to race these guys... Um, as a younger athlete, I got really excited because I'd go out there and I figure I got nothing to lose and I got everything to gain when I race these guys. And, um, um, you know, I just basically, you know, focus only on my lane and I'd go, you know, stick to my plan and go as hard as I possibly could and um, uh, try to get as close to them as I could. And, you know, I started to beat these guys and I just used the same approach when I was racing in Europe. Um, you know, just, I mean, you know, you know who all the good guys are because you can, even back then, you know, you couldn't go online and look at the results, but you'd see the results in the newspaper and magazines or whatever. And so you'd know who the top guys were. And all of a sudden, you know, I find myself on the starting line with these guys and it was like, it was this excitement about the opportunity. To, here, to here we go. Here we go. And Let's so we, lay it down. Yeah, exactly. And it was never a case of of being, um, you know, having nervousness or, you know, kind of some kind of trepidation or mm-hmm. or or um, you know, fear of not performing. That wasn't even an option. It was like this is this great opportunity. Like I'm going to go for it. And it, you know, just I mean, I know you're a big, uh, you know, basketball fan. Like imagine. You know, when you see like uh, an underdog team, especially in college, you know, you get the, where it's a bunch of kids and they're really excited in the tournament. And they say they might be the last seed in the tournament, a number 16 seed. And they go and, you know, they're playing a number one seed and they give them a game or even knock them off. It mm-hmm. happens. So, so it happens because they just play out of their skin, you know. Yeah. They, they, and that's the way I was able to race. And to tell you the truth, that racing um at that stage of my career was a lot easier than racing after I had become really good. And that's, that's what at, I want to touch on point, next, Larry. So you actually go out and you got something to lose. Yeah. And it's, it's a much harder, um, scenario for what is for me anyway, to race from. For sure. And I experienced the same thing when we were coming up and, and racing against some great crews ahead of us, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was pure fearlessness because, you could only go up. The expectations exactly. were like, I'm going to get better, but no one's expecting me to prove it all right now so I can do whatever I want. But walk, yeah. walk us through, like you became a, a world icon in, in canoe sport. At what point did the high expectation and continually mounting, I guess, self-pressure, but maybe even external pressure as well, at what point did that change the race experience or were you able to stay in that kind of pure excitement zone? Yeah, you know, I would say after 84, it became more difficult. And, um, uh, you know, I would have some really good races, and I, but I would also have some really bad races. And, and definitely um, it was harder for me to – I found it harder to race because I, um, I, had, I put great expectations on myself to go out. I knew what I should be able to do now because I had done it before. I'd been in the top – four you know uh, numerous times um and uh so you know anything sort of being in the top four on the podium was always a disappointment and um 
it's a harder way to uh, race, and um, uh, you know, you because you become less focused on process, and in the back of your mind is this the the pressure of having to achieve a result, and um, uh, it re- I really struggled with that for a couple of years, and it wasn't until like '87 when I sort of started to feel comfortable with um, focusing, you know, having a different focus rather than being, um, you know, I couldn't, it wasn't new anymore. So I couldn't use that. It never raced with that fearlessness that, and that, you know, the, the, you know, there, you have nothing to lose attitude that I'd had earlier on the way up. Now I had to race with the attitude of, um, you know, just, uh, staying calm and very clinical and, and doing what I'd done in training and, um, uh, you know, not being overly excited, just being, you know, um, the kind of thing where you could just uh, be calm and professional about how you do it rather than uh, be like, um, you know, like a, just like a excited kid. So, again, going back to the team sport analogy, you know, um, I had to play like uh, with this, I had to race with this sense of belief that if I did everything right, and just focused on doing everything right, not about beating people, that in the end I would get the type of performance and type of result that I wanted. And um, when I did that well, things worked out. And when I didn't do that well, things didn't work out, you know. And I mean, I can remember, I tell, I tell people now that I'm coaching, uh, you know, the importance of being in the moment and being process-oriented and not thinking about the results. And I can remember at the 87 World Championships in Duisburg in 1000 C1, uh, coming through the – you've raced in Duisburg, so you know how close mm-hmm. the 750 is to the finish line. Like, it, you know, it, 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 it looks like the finish is right there, mm-hmm. you know, when you go through that, that last uh, 250. And I went through two or three boat lengths in front. And in the final and feeling like, uh, you know, just feeling awesome, like, like not like I was starting to struggle at all. And I remember thinking, I'm going to win this. And that was the first point in the race where my focus deviated from, you know, just what I was doing in every stroke to thinking about the outcome. And the moment I started to think about that, you know, uh, I started to feel the pressure of, the guys like the German and the Hungarian making the inevitable push that you knew they were going to make. And I started to tighten up and then I started to realize that I was feeling tired and, you know, with a uh, hundred meters to go, I was struggling to hang on to second and with 50 meters to go, I was struggling to hang on to third. And I think I came fifth and, um, you know, that was just a devastating disappointment, but I look at it like I really, I brought it on myself because of the, I let my focus deviate from, mm-hmm. from the, you know, mo- what from I the moment to, you fast forwarded thinking about the outcome. And, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, when I did a better job of that, um, you know, I wouldn't always hang on to first cause sometimes you just, you just can't do that. But I would more often than not be able to hang on and get a result that I feel good about, you know? And, um, and so, uh, um, I just found it way easier to race on the way up than I found uh, at the top. And, you know, on another example of, you know, how pressure and expectations affected performance was like, 
when Stevie got to the point where he was really good. And this is Steve Giles for our listeners. Steve Giles, yeah. yeah. So this would be around 1990. Um, I really struggled to beat him in Canada. Um, it was really a challenge. And he'd get really excited to race me, and I'd get, I'd be really, you know, tight because I'd have everything to lose, and, um, you know, um, and so uh, I really struggled to beat him, and he beat me a bunch of times where, uh, you know, I, in, in Canada, but if we go to Europe and and both race the race because it was two entries a country, I'd beat him, and that that was attributable entirely to mindset, you know, because in Europe I wasn't worried about racing Stevie. I was, there was other guys who were better and I, you know, I mean, I, I, I had what would be able to race more relaxed, but in Canada where it was the, you know, you know what the pressure of selections are like, um, I'd let that get the better of me. Mm-hmm. And, um, I do think, you know, looking back that, um, you know, from the moment I won that, that uh, C1 race in 1979 at the selections. Um, I was never really challenged in Canada again. Um, and, and in 1980, I won the, at, at nationals. I won juvenile, junior, and both senior C1s. And um, and that had never happened before. And um, from that moment forward, I was never really challenged until for 10 years. And um, I think... I would have been. It would have been much easier for me to race later in my career if I'd had more challenges domestically. Uh, domestically earlier in my career. So if that makes any sense. Yeah, it totally does, Larry. And, and I kind of want to backtrack a bit because obviously you touched on your pivotal moment in in 1984 that many of the listeners would know really well. But and I'm sure you've you've touched on the story so many times. But if if you could just kind of you're on the rise. You're starting to perform really well internationally. You're dominant domestically in Canada. How did it all come together for you in 1984? I don't know if I've ever actually explicitly talked to you about it, but what you know, what well, was what was the feeling and the and the mindset and 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 how, I guess what would the the advice from such an amazing moment be that you pass on to others? The, the great thing about that race was it was the best race that I'd ever had to that point in my career at the exact moment in time that I needed to have it. And um, there was a good bit of pressure too because, um, you know, you'll remember that some countries boycotted and that meant that, like, I knew that uh, it was harder to race there with the idea of just being, you know, excited about the opportunity to race all these guys and going and doing the best you can when I knew that really with a couple of the athletes that were missing um, and the way that I raced against them earlier in the year um, that... Um, you felt the opportunity was there for the taking. I, I actually felt like, I actually felt some pressure, like I better win or I'm blowing this opportunity. Hmm. And, um, and so... So what was, uh, what was the day like, Larry? It's Los Angeles. Well, was so it? What I, what, what I did was, um, I went out and um, I got to the course early. I went out and did uh, a light warm up. Just didn't paddle very hard in that light warm up. I came back in and I went out and I did a uh, like an extended warm up, uh, longer than I normally did, 
And I went, I took Peter Koshina, who was the alternate um, for Canada. I took him with me, and we did uh, three, basically, 250s that were really hard, like like really high-quality 250s in the warm-up. And um, uh, I, I wanted to feel... And that's a workout that we frequently did at home where we do 10 250s and with a big rest. This 200, and, 250 uh, meters for our listeners. So this is, meters, yeah. yeah, this is and, uh, half, half the race you're about to race. You yeah, can... basically. And, um, and I knew that I could do, you know, that from doing 10 of them that, you know, number four was usually my best one. Uh-huh. And, okay. And, and after that, you know, I'd start to get a little bit more tired, but, um, and what I wanted to do in that race was I wanted to be, you know, like I could do that workout on the, on the river and be incredibly focused on, on the process. And, um, uh, I, and, you know, just feel like I was shot out of a cannon and mm-hmm. I wanted to have that same feeling, uh, in the final at the Olympics in 500 meters. And because I knew if I could get, if I could put the first, uh, half of the race together in that way um, that um, you know I would be able to just you know maintain my focus and the second half would take care of itself and um, so I did these three hard 250s and then you know basically uh, Peter turned and went back to shore wished me luck and I turned around and went back uh, or paddled down towards the finish line or the starting line sorry and uh had about 10 minutes to just, you know, go in the, you know, the usual small circles at the finish, at the starting line. And, and, uh, what I did was I just basically focused down my lane. I refused to look around me. I just like was basically looking down lane seven. Uh, and, um, uh, just basically at the finish line. And were you, fe- and, were you feeling calm, Larry? And, and collected? At that point, yeah, I felt very calm. I felt very ready. And, um, uh, and I felt like too, like this is going to be really. The next one's going to be really good. The next start in two fifty is going to be really good because uh, the first three were good, and the fourth was usually my best. But I was also taking a little extra rest, so I was going to be even better, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a little extra rest than I normally did. And so I just remember, you know, I just took a quick glance to either side of me to see, you know, the other guys lining up, and I just, I kind of remember thinking, you know, this is this is my day. Like I, I feel I'm so ready. And, um, and that quick glance I took to either side was just, you know, I recognized, yeah, they're there. You know, I got, I got six guys to my left and, and two to my right. And, uh, any one of us can win, but if it's my day, why not me, you know? And, uh, and so did, just, did uh, you stay on your it, process it, during the race, Larry? Like when you entirely, took, you, entirely, you, yeah, so yeah, you, was, you refused to let yourself go ahead where you're like, start thinking about winning and you just, absolutely, absolutely. It was totally, uh, stuck to the process. So the first 250 was phenomenal. And, um, um, you know, I remember going through the, 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 the 250 and, uh, the only thing that, um, crept into you know my mind was I, I remember vaguely hearing a bit of a roar from the crowd um at about the time i went through the 250 um but it was not you know something that i you know it wasn't something that i consciously you know i just remember kind of hearing it i wasn't something that i focused on and 
I was literally just, I had this laser beam focus on the finish line and on the rhythm of my breathing and of my paddling, you know, the, the, just the, the, the hip movement. And um, I do remember in the last uh, 100 meters or so, knowing that I was in front and um, the focus was actually, um, it wasn't on, oh, I'm going to win this. The focus was on basically keep the rhythm, keep the rhythm, keep the rhythm. And, um, um, you know, I didn't try to really build it up at the finish because um, I was aware I had the sensation of quiet on either side of me, you know. Back in the day before these narrow C1s, when in the day of the Delta, when we used to steer and you'd have to hit the side of the boat to steer, you know, the first part of a C1 race would be really noisy because you'd hear nine guys clunk, clunk, clunking off the side of their boat. Um, but as I got in front, I started to get really quiet because I couldn't hear that. And uh, so I had this sensation that I was in front. Um, but I, you know, my objective was to just keep doing what I was doing, keep the rhythm, keep the rhythm, keep the rhythm. And uh, But I didn't try to rise the tempo or pull out a big finish or anything because I didn't want to do anything to disrupt the rhythm, including going harder, you know? And, um, and so it was just, uh, it was just, you know, keep the rhythm. And at that point, I guess, you know, protect the lead, but I still wasn't really thinking of, of outcome. I was just thinking of protect the rhythm. And, uh, um, you know, it, it was the perfect race. Um, and so was, that was what was amazing about it because, um, it was your day. Yeah, you know, and, and I mean, if you think about it, um, I, I, what I learned over the course of my career, you know, in all the races that I did was that, you know, you can have great races and you can come third or fourth. Um, I, I had a really decent race in 88 and I came fourth, you know. Um, um, I had a really good race in 89, I came second. Um, and you can have races where you win and I won at some world cups and you know there were kind of mediocre races and um you know so uh, it, it i started to by the end of my career i started to realize that you know it's not always about the results it's about the quality of the race and um so i found it easier to live with whatever the result was if my if i felt my race was really good and um and when i started to to realized that that was what really mattered i found it easier to i found it easier to race again and so you know think about where i'd come from coming from racing where uh, coming from uh when i was young it was you know i get excited about the race and the opportunity to race and and to crank it up and go beat guys and you know or hang with guys that i didn't think i had any business of hanging with and then gain energy from being there hanging with them and and go even better than I thought I could could go. Mm-hmm. You know that was the way I raced early, and then at the end, I was it was much more uh, internal, and it was more um, just trying to have like you know the, the perfect race where every stroke was really solid, and and um, uh, I focused solely on you know one stroke, the next stroke, the next stroke, um, where the uh, you know the rhythm was really good. Um, you know, it was a totally different, um, approach. Let me jump in there too, because I think that there's a point I'd, I'd love to just hammer home, especially for some of our young athletes coming up. 
and anyone that's kind of making strides in the sport. And I think you nailed it through this story. Find confidence in the process. You doing those 250 meter pieces was about reinstilling confidence. You know, seize the moment and know your opportunities like you did in the race and, and, you know, make, make your own luck kind of thing, you know, set yourself up for success and, and listen to the cues like you did with the process where you, you just focus in on what you knew would work and, and refuse to deviate and, you yeah, know. And, yeah, and, and, we, and, and don't undermine yourself by, by you know, uh, deviating from that focus on process, uh, you know, or because inevitably what happens is you, you, um, you know, you, your your head goes, your your focus goes from internal to external, and then things that as soon as your focus is external, you're exposed to things you can't control, and then that that can affect your confidence, and and it can all unravel quickly. You know, so uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's a total internal thing. As Joel Embiid says, trust the process, right? Exactly. I hope he doesn't trust the process tonight. But um. <laughs> um, so l- l- let's fast forward quickly. I know I'm, I've had you on for a long time, and and people are, are loving this. But we've got some sub enthusiasts and and multidiscipline enthusiasts in the Atlantic Division that I'm sure would love to hear about. You know, the last decade plus of your experience with stand up paddleboards. You know, 34 years after. Um, is, it, is that math right? Yeah, 34 years after uh, 1984, and, and you're still as committed as ever to the sport, paddle sport. Um, what what is the stand-up paddling journey being like for you? Uh, it's been the best thing ever, you know, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, um, I kept paddling C1 after I retired from the national team because I love being on the water. And, um, you know, the feeling of a paddle in your hands, it tug of the paddle. Uh, against your fingers when it's got water loaded on the blade and um mm-hmm. you know the sound of the uh the sound of the uh the boat as it's moving through the water um but uh i i um didn't like uh, the one thing you know for a person that's always like to sort of compete and test themselves uh it's a fairly um uh depressing process to just realize you're getting slower and slower and slower and so uh and the other thing too is i noticed that c1 started to hurt more and more and more it's not a very comfortable position to be in especially if you don't do it every day um and i had this opportunity to finally try stand-up paddling in 2010 and the thing i liked about it right away was that on the right side at least it felt exactly like c1 the stroke felt exactly like c1 only i was standing up instead of high kneeling if you try moving from a high kneel to a stand-up position, you realize that it's it's not that big, uh, that dramatic a difference in in body position, and it's uh, so the mechanics are really similar, unlike uh, like a dragon boat or an outrigger where you're actually sitting down. And um, so I kind of I, I I got aboard and I started to play around on it and uh, uh, really liked it. Uh, there was a challenge of learning to mirror what I could do on the right on the left and then of course the big challenge was being able to go from you know flat water which we all paddle on in spring canoe to big water like you see on the ocean or Lake Ontario on a big day so what's let me jump in Larry what's what's been I guess on 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 the the journey of stand-up paddling what has been the most 
intimidating moment you found yourself in in in, in that big water? Uh, probably the, the 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 most intimidating is uh, getting off the beach when it's big because uh, you got to get punched through the shore break, and that's the weakest part of my racing is getting off the beach. Um, but uh, that's probably the most intimidating, you know, standing on shore, watching, waiting for the start of a race and watching a set roll in that's overhead and know that you got to get through that. Um, and I guess, too, I've had some I've been out offshore, you know, downwinding or paddling upwind to then turn around and go downwind. Uh, and, you know, waves have been head high and 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 crumbling, you know, like white capping. Um, and that gets intimidating. It's. Um, when you're out, when you're so used to paddling in flat water, which is a really controlled environment, and you get out there um, when you know the, when it's going off like that, it's uh, it's really wild, like it's really chaotic, and um, it's easy to lose your uh, composure and and um, get overwhelmed by it all. But um, you know, with time and experience, uh, it and it, it's becomes things start to slow down and the chaos becomes, you know, you start to see a pattern in the chaos and it starts to be, uh, less, um, overwhelming and you start to feel steadier on your board and you realize that, you know, it's a lot of the same lessons we've been talking about, about canoe focusing on process, you know, just focusing on getting your weight off the board and onto your paddle. It's going to support your body weight. It's going to give you balance and keeping your rhythm, keeping your hips moving, keeping your legs pumping, gives you rhythm that that make that gives you gives you stability and if you the more speed your board has the more stability you have and and so um uh you know i'm drawing upon a lot of the things i discovered in canoe i'm just drawing upon them in water that's totally different but it's the same process you know and uh um i have to tell you that it's um uh as hard as it is to paddle in a canoe or kayak, um, there's so many things that you have to be good at. Um, I do think that stand-up paddling at a high level is actually much more complex uh, because there's so many more things you have to be good at mm-hmm. in terms of uh, of handling the conditions and um, you know being able to read the water, being able to control your board to get it to where you want to go, to get the wave that you want to that you know that you've seen that you want to get. Um, it's just, um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's hard and, um, uh, it's, there's a real advantage to that people have if they've grown up on the ocean and started doing that at a really young age. Um, you know, I liken it to, um, you know, one of those kids, when you go to a ski hill and you see kids that are probably three or four years old you know with a helmet and goggles on and no poles and they just bottom down ski hills um <laughs> learning to ski they're going to be good skiers you know if they stick with it whereas if you learned it later in life even as a teenager yeah. um or an adult you know you're never going to be a guy that's killing it in moguls or you know in the train park or you know doing whatever and um uh it's kind of the same on the ocean you know like those of us who came from a flat water environment with enough time, uh, we can get really good, really confident in the ocean and become very, very good. But you're never going to quite, you're never going to, we're never going to be the guys that are, 
you know, go from a race one weekend to surfing Jaws when it's going off the next weekend, you know? It's, and it's, that's what some of the, that same that's what some natural, of the guys are. Yeah, that natural comfort, it, can, yeah, it can't I mean, be replicated I'm, the same way. I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable, you know, with, with not being that guy um, because there's so many opportunities to, uh, to paddle for fun and, and for training and to compete in conditions that are challenging but, but you know, not... Um, not insane um and um uh i continue like every day i go out i get i'm better at something than i was the day before mm-hmm. and um you know at my age i'm gonna be 56 in january that's pretty amazing so um that's what i love about it and um i'm just lucky that you know that's my business now is coaching and uh primarily in stand-up paddling and and so i'm able to start my day pretty much 365 days a year with a paddle mm-hmm. and then, and then get down to work, you know? So I, I, I'm, I'm in a good place right now. So, so before we kind of leave it there, Larry, what's the next race on your docket? My next, I won't race again until the spring. So it's probably Carolina, uh, Carolina cup, which is uh, third weekend in April. Um, I've had, a. Yeah, I don't race as much as I used to because I don't really need to, I don't think, to race um, to get uh, fulfillment. Uh, I race, I pick a few races a year that I really like to do um, that are also good for my business. Um, it's good for me to race to some degree because it keeps me relevant and that is good for business. But uh, um, So I like Carolina because it's a little bit of ocean, it's a little bit of flat. Uh, Great, great, comu- great community coming out for that race too, is there not? Yeah, and most of the top people in the world are there. So you know, if I crack the top thirty there, that's uh, that's a, a great result. And um, you know, because I'm, I'm racing, you know, the uh, the um, Adam Vancouverdens and Mark Oldershaws, and or, or, or I guess you know, let's get even more current. I'm racing the Sebastian Brendels of <laughs> of uh, of stand up paddling, right, uh, at that race. And then I do a few other races through the year. That uh, a big one in the fall is. Uh, Chattajack, which is a flat water race, it's fifty-two uh, k down the Tennessee River, mm-hmm. and uh, and and you've won uh, you've won that a number of years in a row, right? Yeah, I won that five years in a row this year, so that mm, was congratulations. Cool. And um, but that's like a marathon, you know, canoe race. There's lots of drafting, there's lots of strategy, um, and um, it's uh, you know five hours of focus, and it's it's a grind a bit, but it's also uh, very tactical and. So that's a fun one, and and um, uh, but you know, uh, the cool thing is, like somebody said to me this year, they go, "You can't really lose," and I go, "What do you mean?" And they said, "Well, you know, like you're 55 and you're going out, and if you know if you get beat by guys that are a lot younger than you, then it's like you're supposed to get beat by them. But if you beat them, it's like it's amazing, and you know that's kind of the way I feel. I go out and I race now, and I." I want to do well. I'm very competitive by nature. Um, and, uh, but you know, I come in and five minutes after the race, the result, it's been, you know, it's been, I've processed it. And, uh, um, whether it's a great race or it's, a it's a race that wasn't as good. Um, doesn't really matter after about five or 10 minutes. It's, um, I, it's everything I'm doing now is, is gravy. It's just, uh, fantastic to, to be involved in in the sport, to have the opportunity to race, to have the opportunity to get better at something every day, 
and to be part of a, the paddling, you know, the paddling community. Yeah, and, so, and, and, uh, and to give back. So let's, um, just before you go, you've alluded to a bit, the, the business is called Paddle Monster. It's a online coaching opportunity to learn all about uh, how to improve your paddle stroke, right, Larry? It's holistic coaching, correct? Yeah, it's uh, coaching, that's a, a subscriber-based uh, coaching. It's not so much, uh, we're really just starting to get into the technique coaching, but it's been a lot of boat training. Most people have no idea on how to train. And so, you know, if you take a, a periodized program and set it for people that's geared towards their priority races, um, you know, they, it makes a big difference. You know, the training works and they, when they've never trained properly before and you put them on a properly organized program, they, they see a huge increase in performance. So that's what the focus has been to this point, but we're starting to get more into the finding a way to do, you know, remotely by distance using video and stuff, more technical help as well. Awesome. And, and where, where will our, our loyal listeners of the paddle pod follow you on uh, online? Where should they find you? Uh, you? You can find me on Instagram at, uh, at Larry Kane canoe. Um, you can find me on my Facebook page, which is uh, uh, Larry Kane, the athlete page. I don't do the personal one much. Um, and um, uh, if they want to follow Paddle Monster, it's uh, Facebook, it's uh, Paddle Monster. And on Instagram, it's at PDLMNSTR. We just drop all the vowels. Hey, guys, so you've heard it here, uh, Paddle Pod listeners. You know, what an opportunity to chat with you know, a living legend in paddle sport. Larry, thanks so, so much. Um, Remember, follow along at ADCKC and send your questions to andrew at adckc.ca. You know, we just have such a great community here in paddle sport and, you know, people like Larry have blazed a path for some some great athletes and more to come. And, uh, you know, it's always great to talk paddling. So, Until next time, Larry, thanks again for a wonderful interview and and for sharing so much with our listeners.